Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, and I'm continuing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. And today we're in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. The subject is an exciting subject, one that I think you will find uh, involving and engaging as you uh, read this and look at these uh, meanings and special uh, passage that we've got before us today. Let me read this to you. It's found in Revelation chapter 19. The Word of God reads, beginning in verse 7, and I'll read through verse 10. Beginning in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, And he said to me, these are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is giving us another reason for hallelujah. We've already seen several reasons for praising and singing hallelujah in heaven. As I mentioned last time, heaven burst Uh, burst forth with praise and hallelujahs. And so this has given us another reason. Remember in in chapter 19 began, it was a hallelujah for salvation has come. And then there was another hallelujah because righteousness and justice prevails. Another hallelujah because rebellion is ended. Hallelujah again in verse 6 because the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely and totally sovereign. And here we see hallelujah because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Well, I believe this is a wonderful text, but we just have to look at some things to define this. Who is the groom? Who is the bride? And who are the people invited here, the invited guests? And hopefully we can cover some of this. If I can't get through this, we'll we'll finish it next time. Uh, But it's a very important passage. I need to lay some groundwork on this. And so I want to uh, talk to you just for a moment about the image of a marriage. It says the image of a marriage is often uh, given in Scripture. And so it gives us to us uh, without going back and looking at all this. But I saw I want to mention just a few things. Uh, Any student of of the Word of God will pretty much recognize this image of marriage and and how many times it's used in illustrations uh, of of, of one another in in certain parts of Scripture. We've seen it many times because a marriage was the single greatest celebration known in that part of the ancient world. In fact, many times, even today, it is the, the... the greatest celebration in any part of our social life. A marriage was the greatest social event that ever happened. And it still is today for many people. Many people have no real social uh, activities other than the marriage itself. For most people, people spend more money, they spend more time, more effort on a wedding than uh, other events in their social life. And they, they, like I said, they still do it today. In fact, I'm told that uh, the wedding costs more than childbirths and certainly takes a lot more planning. So, in ancient times, though, marriages were were even uh, more grander. As uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse says, they were the grandest of all parties and social events. 
Uh, we, we think that that's pretty grand today, but they're not like they used to be. In fact, a lot of times we don't even hardly relate to those uh, in the older, older ancient times because they're just so different in the way we do things today. And one of the reasons is because uh, marriages are, are, are involving in, in three different levels or three different elements. The ancient wedding in biblical times was structured around these elements. The first is the betrothal, a word used in the Bible. Uh, our word would be engaged or espoused. These would be the same kind of words. And then that was the first phase. The second uh uh, this was a legally binding uh, contract signed by both parents. Uh, and, and so you, you can look at this and think already you, you, you can't really understand that but because it's so different. But the second is uh, the presentation. Now, the presentation was a time of festivities. Just prior to the actual wedding itself, there was a time of festivities which led up to the actual wedding ceremony which culminated in those activities uh, or festival times. Those festivities could last several days. In fact, there's a lot of literature to say they could last a week. Some have been known to even last longer. But it's interesting to note that uh, even before this second component in the marriage, which is the presentation, along with the first one, it was not only legally binding engagement, uh, which well, we, 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 don't, we don't have that today. Think about that. Uh, but it occurred many times with the parents before the children were even born. In other words, it's the parents making the commitment that my family son will marry your family if you, when you, know, if you have a daughter, we will let those get married. But it wasn't just let them get married, they were binding them. And so it would occur with two sets of parents would get together and realize that the bonding that would take in place between the two groups because they were wise enough to know that if you build or try to build a marriage on flurries or, or just the, the passing, sometimes romantic love, you're going to have some major disappointments. But if you have solidarity uh, of values and standards and morals and beliefs that pass between families, then that can be something cohesive in the relationship. So the betrothal was a very important one not one that you could get out of, and it was very binding, which makes the presentation, the second component, a little bit more uh, festive, uh, more interesting to, to look at. You think it costs a lot to marry off your daughter now because you have to spend so much money for the wedding. Imagine if you had to entertain the guests, feed them, and house them for a week or a month. In some cases, weddings back then lasted. If a marriage occurred between somebody who was very wealthy or between somebody who had royal blood, it was in some kind of a role of a king or a leader, the marriage might last anywhere from several weeks to a month or more. Imagine trying to support that. But there's another interesting note here that's interesting to, to look at in, in the subject of these uh, past marriages in, in ancient times. Uh, it was, it was not the, the bride that was the center of attention, the focus. It was the bridegroom. He was the center. The bridegroom was the center of the event, and he would present his bride to the gathered guests and the gathered friends, and they would feast together for this prolonged period of time. She was still, of course, a virgin because of the legality of the binding contract, which would not allow for the consummation of the marriage. They still lived in their own homes apart from one another until the presentation. 
The bridegroom then would go to the house of the bride and would get the bride along with her maidens and take them to his house. And there the festivities would begin as he presented his lovely bride. Not quite like it's done today. That leads us to the third component in the marriage, which was the ceremony, the actual exchanging of vows. This would be at the end of the period of feasting, the period of presentation when all the people would come uh, and, and they would meet the bride and see her in all her glory and her beauty and they would talk with the families and, you know, kind of mingle around and, 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 and partake of all the, the things there at the, at, the, at the wedding. They would have the exchange of vows. The friends of the bridegroom, another name for, or the friend of the bridegroom, another name for what we would call the best man, would take the hand of the bride clasp it into the hand of the groom and they would say their final vows and hopefully all the guests would leave. The friend of the bridegroom would sure uh, would be sure they did and then the marriage would be consummated. The ceremony and the final hour after that would be something that we're looking at. So uh, it's hard to relate to all of this because it is so different from our culture. But it was not different for those people. They, they would understand that someone from Israel today could sit right here and probably even correct me on some of this because of the way they still do it in this very day. So the ceremony and the final hour after that final meal when the vows were shared and the marriage was then consummated was the main event. That's what really brought them together. In fact, when we understand that, we can see uh, why Joseph was so upset when he found Mary to be with child because they were only engaged. That betrothal period, that first component of marriage had happened. They had not been married. And that's why the options for him, for her, was for death or divorce because she had violated a legal contract, or at least on the surface it appeared to be so, before I think uh, he was instructed by an angel to actual to the actual reality of her having conceived by the Holy Spirit. So it just helps us to, to get that kind of a background uh, familiar with us. So the last meal, the presentation of the festivities, then comes the vows and the consummation. This is uh, the very familiar imagery. The Lord used it in relationships to his church. We find it in 2 Corinthians, for example, the Apostle Paul talking about the church, the most beautiful language, he says, I betroth you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. There you have the betrothal and the presentation in one verse. But we see this all through the New Testament. You don't have to just stay in the Old Testament. Sure, you can go to the New Testament. Paul says, I give you the gospel as a kind of way to betroth you, to engage you to Christ, to present you to him as a virgin is my desire, to keep you pure through the betrothal period and to present you as a virgin pure before him at the time of the ceremony. This is what Paul is talking about. And so when you, in, in 2 Corinthians, that is. But also he mentions it in Ephesians chapter 5, you find the same imagery of the bride again in the relationship to the church. It's, it's a wonderful passage, familiar to all of us. I'm sure if we could uh, had a chance to study all of this, you'd see Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Listen to the way that reads. Wives, be subject, subject to your own husbands 
as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. There you have it. When it came time for the presentation, the greatest anxiety and the greatest pain that a man would ever experience would be if the time he couldn't present his bride to the guests and the gathered people as pure and chaste, virgin. That would have been a great shame. And again, we see that Lord who has espoused us to himself. Actually, you want to know something? He signed a contract. It's called an eternal covenant. And we see it in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 20, God the Father signed a contract with the Son in eternity past. And in that contract was a redeemed people that would be called his bride, as well as others out of the nation of Israel and out of the nations of the world. But there was a betrothal for this bride in eternity past before the foundation of the world. And it is the desire, of course, of the Redeemer, that when that day comes that the bride is presented, she be presented in all her beauty and her purity. The imagery here of a man and a woman and the purity of their relationship, uh, I think, is symbolic of the church. The church, then, is betrothed to Christ in an eternal contract before any of us were born. Now, think about that. And I know that brings up other questions, uh, some of which I don't want to uh, say right now because, or get into right now because I don't want to hinder this message. The church then was betrothed to Christ in an eternal contract before the foundations of the earth. That is, before any of us were born. Thus, we became part of the elect bride of the Lord before the world began. Doesn't that just make sense? God knew exactly who he wanted his bride to be. He knew exactly who was to be the bride. He knew exactly who the individuals were going to be. And someday we're going to be presented. That'll happen at the rapture. The church is taken to heaven. Remember John chapter 14, the very first part. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. Remember that. It's very, very simple picture, and it carries the picture of the bridegroom who goes away to get the place ready, and he'll come back to get his bride. That's where we are now, waiting for that. And he'll take his bride to the place he has prepared in the Father's house. Now, that's how they used to do it, and you can see the imagery is just dripping off the pages right into where the church is today, waiting for the return of our Lord to rapture the believers out before the tribulation period. It's quite an amazing thing is to look at this. So I think this imagery is wonderful and is helpful in looking at the rapture of the church as the Lord coming to get his bride, to take his bride, to make the presentation. He presents her first of all in glory, in her glorified form, that is, with the resurrected bodies, with raptured saints, as well as those who have gone on before. 
Then there's a time of tribulation on earth, which is a seven-year period of tribulation. And during that time, I believe the presentation is going on in heaven. I believe that at the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation period, remember the rapture takes us into heaven, and then on earth we have the seven-year tribulation period. The bride is taken to glory, presented to the heavenly host, to the spirits of just men made perfect who have now had resurrection bodies and are made glorified. And for those seven years on, that are happening on earth, there is feasting and joyous fellowship and wonderful celebration in heaven. So once again, we see that during the whole period of tribulation period, there is wonderful feasting and joyous fellowship and celebration in heaven. It's kind of like going from chapter 18 to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation. Chapter 18, you remember chapter 18 uh, was the, the weeping and the wailing over the, the cry of the, the, the great city being destroyed. The kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, will weep and lament over her because they see the smoke of her burning. That's found in Revelation chapter 18. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn. Uh, and, and, and then the, the merchants of these things who became rich with her stand at a distance because of the fear, torment, weeping, and mourning. You find this all through Revelation 18. And so then you begin to realize earth is in a turmoil. Earth is whirling over, I mean, over again because of the judgment of God that has fallen because of the destruction as God is wiping out the kingdom of the Antichrist uh, the, uh, of Satan himself. And then you go immediately into chapter 19, and then you hear a loud voice, and hallelujahs are heard ringing through heaven. And yet several different ones are given to us and the reasons. And then you come to where we are here in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, meaning Christ, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride is ready, has made herself ready. So I believe the rapture is the beginning of tribulation. The bride is taken to glory. Uh, and this, this wonderful celebration is happening. And then on earth, destruction, judgment. But now it's time for the final supper. That's where we find ourselves in Revelation 19, 7 through 10. It's the last great event. And this is what we have heard. We have, uh, we have here when we talk about the marriage of the Lamb, we have the final culminating event. The betrothal in eternity past already happened before we were born. The presentation clearly when the saints are taken into glory, we're waiting on that. And now, once we're up there, then the end of the tribulation comes on earth. Now, in verses 7 through 10, now the final great event as the marriage is consummated in its fullness. And that's going to be something we're going to take a look at as far as the kingdom and the age there. So, from this presentation, this imagery that I presented to you, it seems clear to me that there's only one way that to view the bride in this whole picture, and that is to see the bride as the church. Some people seem a bit confused about that. I have really no understanding how they could be confused at that, but they are confused at that. And so I look at this and think, man, that there's really no reason for the confusion for that because of all that is there. So when we look at this, clearly from Ephesians 5 and from 2 Corinthians uh, even 11, the imagery of the marriage fits the church, the virgin. 
there would have been uh, something to, to be able to say it is somebody else, but it is not somebody else, so it is the church. So with that in mind, I want to be able to move from that into uh, verse 7. We'll, we'll begin there and to taking a, a look at the uh, uh, verses themselves so that we can kind of break this apart. I don't want to, uh, to get it confusing, but the magnificent marriage imagery, which is designed uh, to demonstrate the greatness of the celebration when the Lord is joined to his beloved people, the church. Uh, the imagery of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the groom. His beloved church is the bride. That is what we have to be clear about. Uh, that was the glorious, that will be a glorious day. That will be a wonderful day, a day like none other. A day when we are joined together with our Lord in the fullness of the eternal glory which he has planned for us. And so we see this as, a, as just a, an opportunity to, to share with you these wonderful things that we're, we're looking at as far as teaching. So in verse 7, we see uh, it's about to happen on the edge of the brink of occurring. The statement we noted last time, his bride has made herself ready. His bride has made herself ready is uh, something we need to take a look at. But look at what it says in, in, in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. We might suggest there's another part that's being made ready. When the church is raptured, you know the first thing that will happen after the church is taken to glory? Uh, there's something I just need to mention, and that is we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, if I could lay all this out, if I was teaching in uh, right now in a big classroom, I'd probably have a big board up there where I could kind of show you these things. But really, after the rapture, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, which is not a judgment it's a time to receive rewards for what we've done. The useless things will be burned up, and all that will be left to judge will be those priceless, valuable things, and the Lord then will reward his people. Perhaps the reward constitutes, I think, uh, the cleansing here. As the wood, hay, and stubble is burned up, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see that. But yet you also see gold, silver, and precious stones uh, remain. The bride then becomes... Uh, uh, clean and pure as it is majestic beauty. She is then made ready uh, by being purged. She is made ready by being rewarded. She is made ready by being cleansed of all iniquity. She is made ready uh, by being made more beautiful because the eternal reward, the bride has been glorified. The bride has been rewarded. The bride has made herself ready. Again, this is talking about the church. And so you don't need to be confused at this point because it is very clear. And so you look at verse 8. Another feature of her, of a feature of her readiness is uh, in the, the clothing. Look at what it says in verse 8. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And notice the, that the kind of wording is here. Uh, fine and clean, bright uh, and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's plural. And there, of course, is the purification. She puts on what was given to her by God. She puts on the garments of cleanliness. She puts on righteous acts. That's interesting to note that. Remember, we're talking about us. When we're talking about the bride, we're talking about the church, we're talking about us. Now listen, when we're saved, and not everybody understands this, you take many different religions, uh, especially the predominant religion in America, which is Catholic, they don't understand this one statement I'm fixing to make. 
When we're saved, we're clothed in righteousness. What kind of righteousness? We're, well, really, it's the righteousness of, of Christ. We are clothed, clothed in his righteousness. It's referred to us in the New Testament and all through Romans as imputed to us. But now the glorified church has a righteousness all its own because we're looking at the church here already having been raptured, already having been taken through the judgment seat of Christ. So it's not just garments of righteousness put over her to cover her sin. It is the righteous acts that characterize this bride. She is righteous, not just on the outside. She is not just with a covering, but she is righteous through and through. This is depicted by giving us this wordage here, this verbiage, this fine linen, bright and clean. That is, this is a marvelous concept here. It's the idea of holiness and purity and spotlessness. Uh, you know, th this is talking about the church after the rapture, after the cleansing, after the reward times and the burning up of those useless works. And so the garments... We've seen these garments earlier in the book of Revelation. You see it back in chapter 15 uh, with some of the angels, but yet we, we find fine linen here was the most expensive and the loveliest of cloths. And, uh, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse says, says this about this. He says, it's the loveliest of cloths. The word bright, his Greek word, means glistening. It means shining or radiant. Clean is another word here, uh, the Greek word means just that. It means clean. In fact, the same word appears in the 21st chapter of Revelation, verses 18 through 21, and is translated pure there. Pure, it also has the idea because in verse 18 through 21 of, of Revelation 21, pure gold like clear glass, it says. Pure gold like transparent glass. So what is on the bride here is the expensive, magnificent, beauty, fine linen, radiant, shining. It's like I can't get enough words in there to read transparent. It's a transparent kind of brilliance. It's a kind of glory, isn't it? It's a kind of shikana. Uh, when you read about the shikana glory, and we talk about that, and we looked at Genesis chapter 3. But here we see the church made righteous, the church fully righteous. And by the way, when you look down at verse 14, you see, and we'll cover this next time uh, or in a week or two, the armies in heaven uh, when the return of Christ come out on a white horse. The armies which are in heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, which were following him on white horses. Now in this vision, we see Christ returning, and as he returns, all the saints are with him. You say, is that the saints? Yes. Uh, this is not talking about angels. This is the description, once again, of the saints that are there. And so we see this is the picture here of our readiness. And then verse 9, And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now here again he adds supper of the Lamb because it is the culminating event here. And so... This marriage imagery is to center our attention on the final, all-glorious union with Jesus Christ, with His beloved church. We can't forget that. And this is why, this is that for which we wait. This is what we live for. This is the great climax of our lives. Uh, as we look at this, it's a, it's, it's a, 
quite actually amazing. Now, the celebration then begins, of course, at the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, where we are purified and rewarded. Then we come back to earth there in the glorious kingdom set up with Christ when he comes back. And then in chapter 21, we find even more pictures of that. But I think here the whole thing really never is consummated until John says in Revelation 21, I saw the new heaven and a new earth. That means the kingdom is over. So we still have to get all of that in. So now it's a new heaven and a new earth. And then I think that's where we'll see the total consummation of that. That's when all the bride is taken to the new heaven and the new earth. And, uh, but then, I, but first, I want you. I know I'm kind of jumping the gun because uh, it just kind of lends itself to that. But in verse nine, it says to me, "Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb." Now we have another thing here to look at. We've got the bride, which is the church. We've got the the groom, which is Christ Himself, or the Lamb. Either one is Christ. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who are the invited ones? This is very important. This is a, a thing to be looking at. It's one of the blessings or the beatitudes of Revelation. Uh, the one says, uh, joyous and satisfied, is what the word means, are, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, who is that? It's not the bride. The bride is not invited. Uh, we go back to Matthew chapter 8, if we had time, and we see that the same illustration is given there. Uh, but I just want to draw you to one thought tonight. Jesus identifies faith in that, that passage there in Matthew uh, as, as one of the components of the kingdom. And it says, The kingdom they will come from the east and the west and from all over the world. They will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And while I believe that is uh, the kingdom is spiritual kingdom, I do think it refers to the messianic real kingdom on earth. They're part of the invited guests. Remember, this is not the church. The invited guests, they're part of a redeemed Israel. There will be many others who are Jews, truly saved, proselytes to Judaism. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets of the kingdom of God, I believe Old Testament saints are all going to be part of that. All the prophets, faithful, and the, the, the priests, and the, uh, the believers redeemed by grace through faith, Enoch and Noah, all of these are the invited guests. All of them are going to be raised. According to Daniel chapter 3, they're going to be raised and I believe coming of Jesus to set up the kingdom. All of Hebrews 11, the heroes of what we call the faith, they're all going to be there in the kingdom. They're all going to be the invited guest. That's important for us to know. It's not that God is just simply just playing favorites to play favorites. The greatest Old Testament prophets who ever, whoever, the greatest Old Testament, I think, prophet who ever lived was John the Baptist. He'll be there as an invited guest. He's not part of the church. He's a guest. He uh, was a believer before the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which makes him an invited guest. He's a friend who stands and rejoices in favor of God on the couple that is being married. The bride is something very special. The least of us who has been saved, the humblest of us, is, is uh, what he's referring to in that. So we have the invited guest. God designated it that way. He can do whatever he wants. 
He's God. Remember, just before this, we saw in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He's absolutely sovereign, and he can do whatever he wants. This is the way he has laid it out, and this is the way it will happen. So at that point, it's simply the Lord is going to take the church to himself, pure, holy, and reward it. And then I'm going to close with these words. He says, these are faithful and true words. Uh, these are true words of God telling John, man, write this down. Make note of that this is, it probably was so overwhelming that the angels just had to look at all this is true. And at that point, uh, John begins to worship him, falls at his feet to worship him, and he simply corrects him and says, no, the worship goes to God. Now, I can't go much further than that. I hope that's not too confusing. I, I probably had too much information to try to work in. But uh, please stick with me. As next week, we're going to take the beginning look at, or look at what happens in verse 11. And we're in for a ride here. We're going to be taking a look at the second coming. We're going to be taking a look at the kingdom. And uh, next week, I may even just give an introduction to how all of this is going to happen. So please hang with me. Thank you for joining us today on Hope for the Heart. And again, the subject has been the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you.